Good morning. We continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Today we find ourselves in the 16th chapter. I have to tell you, when I uh, read my assigned text just a few weeks back, my first instinct, my first and strongest and most dominant instinct was to abort and to switch to another text. None of the parables has baffled Jesus, or excuse me, not baffled Jesus, baffled, <laughs> he, he got this, baffled interpreters quite like the story of the shrewd manager. It's likely no one's favorite parable. It is very infrequently preached. It follows on the heels of the parable of the prodigal son at the end of chapter 15, Jesus' story of the two lost brothers, the prodigal and his brother. It ranks near the top of all-time favorites. The story of the lost brothers and their patient and compassionate father, it touches emotions deep within us. Today's passage likely will not touch emotions deep within you. That parable of the prodigal son, a father has two sons. Both of the sons are lost. They both treat the father, uh, they fall short. They don't treat him as well as they could treat him. The younger so does so in a self-indulgent and foolish way, squandering his inheritance, wanting the father's things rather than the father himself. The older son does so in an unforgiving, judgmental spirit, rule-following, at all costs, self-righteous way. The father receives them both with a wide-open embrace and a reckless welcome. He kills the fatted calf. He invites everyone to come and to celebrate over a meal. We love this story. Rembrandt's painting of it moves us still. The party of Luke 15 still hangs in the air. That story of the prodigal son and a grace-filled vision of a kingdom as we now turn toward chapter 16. In contrast to the beloved parables of chapter 15, the story that immediately follows takes the prize for, the, for being the most ignored or if not just ignored, dismissed outright, says Eugene Peterson. My friend Mark Roberts, our friend Mark Roberts, he's preached here on a few occasions when he was on staff at Laity Lodge. He notes as we leave the extraordinary encouragement of the lost and found God in Luke 15 that Luke 16 can make us feel as we have somehow slipped into Alice's bizarre wonderland. Turn with me now to the bizarre wonderland of chapter 16. In a story of a rich man who has a manager overseeing his estate. God's word for us. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his manager's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered a hundred jugs of olive oil. 
He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than, they, than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with a dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Generous God, you have done and are doing marvelous things. Thank you for your extravagant love. Speak to us now words of life for the sake of your world. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Jesus comes up with a parable, and it goes something like this. An estate manager is fired from his job, and he deserves it. We don't know specifically what he did, but he squandered or wasted his master's resources. It's the same word, that word squandered, that's used in the story of the prodigal son when the younger son takes his part of the inheritance, inheritance goes to a foreign country, and wastes it in immoral living. It's important to note that the master is assumed to be an honorable man. A key to understanding the story is this. The steward is fired but not jailed or scolded. He's not even required to pay back what was embezzled. The master shows unusual mercy and generosity even to a dishonest steward. What am I going to do, the steward wonders. I'm a skinny business guy, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am too proud to beg. He's facing ruin, he likely will not be able to get the same kind of job, there's not that many of that type of job available anyways, and he sure is not going to get a very good letter of recommendation from his former employer. Facing ruin, he puts together a daring plan. A plan that risks everything on the mercy that he has already received from the master. If he fails, he will surely go to jail. The key to this situation is that no one knows yet that he has been fired. So he acts quickly. He summons the debtors one by one and cuts the amount that they owe. Maybe he undercuts his boss's profits. Maybe he removes interest from their debts. Maybe he removes his own commission so that what he sacrifices is his own money rather than the money of the master. Regardless, he radically reduces the amount that is owed. 
In so doing, he creates goodwill for himself and secures friendship he didn't have before. The master now has two choices. He knows that a great celebration has likely begun down in the village with the people celebrating that he is the most noble and generous master ever. He's on the receiving end of goodwill too. The master can go back to the debtors and explain that it was all a mistake, that the steward had already been fired and that his actions are null and void, which will surely mean the loss of a lot of favor for him in the village. Or he can say nothing. Accept the praise, let the manager go unpunished, rascal though he is, and enjoy his popularity. The manager looks at the steward, the master, excuse me, looks at the steward, the manager, and says, you are a really clever man. Which brings us then to the dreadfully confusing <laughs> verses 8 and 9. Jesus seems to then say that you want to be like this person, which is really puzzling. What is Jesus trying to teach us? We know that he is not trying to teach us that we should be dishonest. That would not line up with the whole rest of the corpus of Scripture that has a lot to say about integrity and honesty. This whole parable can be a bit distracting. The point is really clear, even though some parts of the story don't make sense. So we've got to make sure that we don't lose the point. The concluding verses help us not to misinterpret this parable. It's about being a faithful steward in big things and in small things and to guard against wealth becoming our master. Friends, I'd like for us to consider two things this morning that we see in this parable of the shrewd manager. The first being that we are stewards of money that is not ours. The second being that we invest our worldly wealth in things that last and one very big thing that lasts is people and relationships. The parable is about a manager, a steward. It's a really important word in, in Scripture, a really important word for a Christ follower. So what does it mean to be a steward? During my youth ministry years, I was asked many times to house sit. Sometimes that meant just keeping an eye on a house and a yard. More frequently, it meant also keeping an eye on animals and kids with the really big hope that the animals and the kids would still be healthy and alive when the owners came back from their trip. I'd move in and have a run of the place, enjoying a lovely home with a well-stocked refrigerator. I would sit in their chairs, I would sleep in their bed, I would watch their TV, I would swim in their pool. Sometimes I invited friends over to enjoy these good gifts as well, yet always keeping in mind that I was both enjoying and caring for things that belong to someone else. There's a great sense of responsibility. I remember on one of the trips coming into a house and a note had been left for me by a then eight-year-old, Heather, telling me to have fun while she was in Hawaii, but most especially to please make sure her cat Boo doesn't die, with quite a few exclamation marks following. I was very attentive to Boo that week. In biblical terms, I was functioning as a steward. 
Stewards are people who live in a place that they do not own. Making full use of it, but also keeping in mind always that they are caring for things that belong to someone else. A fundamental principle of biblical steward is this, that it all belongs to God. The psalmist begins in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. It all belongs to God. That's easy to forget, isn't it? We have titles to our cars, deeds to our homes, and security to protect our private property. It feels like it belongs to us. But it, it doesn't, not ultimately. Rather, we are stewards, and one very important thing that we steward is money. We are stewards of money that is not ours. Jesus cares about money, and he talks about it a lot. What can we pull from this story that we need to hear? One thing we can pull from this story is that everyone has something to teach us. People who make mistakes have someone, something to teach us. The shrewd manager has the capacity to make creative decisions, decisions for the future, in a moment of crises. And Jesus seems to say Christians can learn from those in the secular world, the children of this age, as to how to invest and manage money. Do we know how to save for a rainy day? Track money, give money, make investments for the future, plan for worst case scenarios. If we need help for, for any of this, we can find people within the body of Christ to help us, you bet. But Jesus seems to say that there are people out in the world who live in the secular world who have something to teach us that would benefit us as well. Covenant's own Megan Pori, a financial advisor in Austin and a member of Covenant's Foundation, she has a wonderful article on our website, you can find it still, about a Christian's attitude toward money. Megan writes, money can be viewed as a source of joy and security or a source of discord and scarcity with a range of emotions in between. When best utilized, money is a good tool for us to provide things for ourselves and others. However, most of us do not have a comfortable relationship with money. You have almost certainly heard this piece of scripture misquoted as money is the root of all evil. Misunderstanding this message has led to more guilt, shame, money avoidance, and wrong-minded thinking than one can imagine. The fact is that money is a necessary and important part of our lives, and we must have a healthy relationship with it. As Francis Bacon, an English philosopher who was alive more than 400 years ago, said, money is a good servant but a bad master. Being clear that you are thoughtfully and deliberately exercising stewardship over your financial resources and you are not, in fact, a slave to greed is a great place to start, writes Megan. Money is not a good thing or a bad thing in and of itself. It's what you do with it. Jesus is not against money at all, but he is very concerned about its place in your life. When money becomes a master, then we are engaging in something called idolatry. 
An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give to you what only God can give. Presbyterian founder John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. As Tim Keller writes, it's the making of good things into ultimate things. Good things like relationships and family and security and beauty and work and money and our skills and our talents. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God and Everything does serve as a counterfeit God, especially the best things in life. Money can become a counterfeit God. This idol is so deep in our lives that it's often challenging for us to recognize. Friends, Lent is a a time, this period of Lent that we find ourselves in, it is a time of self-examination. A time to look at how we are living our lives, to see what we are devoting our lives to, how we are walking with God, and it is an opportunity to do better. One thing we can examine during this time of Lent is our counterfeit gods creeping in to our lives. One of the most helpful ways to remind ourselves that money is a tool and not our master is to share it with others. We put money into things that help people, mend people, enable other people to flourish and to be more fully alive. There's more than one way to squander or waste what God has given to us. What if squandering also means that we are keeping too much for ourselves? This parable reminds me of one of my former students, Jonathan. Jonathan was a very savvy middle school student. Not athletically inclined, he struggled sometimes to find his place with a a group of guys, especially if a football or a basketball was involved. He struggled habitually to make friends. Where he excelled was in the area of clever business. For example, during one of our middle school mission trips, after a a bathroom and snack stop at a large convenience store, Jonathan made his way back into the 15-passenger van, and he went all the way back to the back of the back seat of the van, which was already a a little odd because he typically liked to sit toward the front, but he had this really big bag of snacks that he carried back to the back of the van. It wasn't long before I noticed in the rear view mirror that quite a bit of money exchange was happening and it was all kind of revolving around Jonathan. We then discovered that Jonathan had bought a box of individually wrapped Little Debbie Swiss rolls that he was now selling individually at an inflated rate, making a nice little profit off of his naive friends while appreciating his shrewdness. It was yet another opportunity for the adults in Jonathan's life to help him to learn how to practice generosity and how to harness some of that clever thinking for good and not just to think about accumulating money for himself, which involved learning how to avoid making money at the expense of others. It may not surprise you to learn that Jonathan is now a vice president and mortgage loan officer. He's also the collector of friends and a deeply devoted Christ follower. 
We are called to be an extravagantly generous community. It's the generous action of a manager and the generous action of God that defines our lives. Our earthly possessions won't last forever. We know this to be true. As the old adage goes, we can't take it with us. But what we can do with them can indeed last for eternity because money fails, but people last forever. We invest our worldly wealth in what last one thing being people and relationships. Michael Wilcox concluded his interpretation on this parable in his commentary on Luke with this wonderful sentence. A sentence about investing in a fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. What a good thing for us to consider this spring break. This whole notion of investing in a fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. Having a kingdom purpose and a kingdom perspective means that we think about and invest in what will really last. We aim to have treasures in heaven which do not decay with one of our greatest treasures being our relationships. Friends, we are God's steward. That is our job, living in a place we do not own, making full use of it, always keeping in mind that we are caring for things that belong to somebody else as a position of significant responsibility and trust. True wealth consists not in what we keep, but in what we give away. How are you doing with the faithful stewardship of money? May God give to us a renewed vision for the kingdom of God among us and beyond us, for our freedom and for the benefit of the world. Would you pray with me? Oh, creator God, we are in awe at the reckless love that you continue to give to us and how you welcome us with abandon time and time again. We long to be better stewards beginning today of your world that you have entrusted to us as a way to demonstrate our gratitude for your love. We repent of all the ways that we squander your gifts, including the gift of one another. God, we pray to be wise in particular in our use of our financial resources that you have entrusted to us. Create in us such a sense of wonder and awe and delight in all of your gifts that we may receive them with gratitude, care for them with love, and generously share them for the blessing of others, for the restoration of your world. We pray for this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.